0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at iaslc.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode, we continue our series discussing new FDA approvals in lung cancer. Today, we'll discuss the approval of Adagrasib. Adagrasib received accelerated approval by the U.S. FDA on December 12, 2022, for advanced non-small cell lung cancer, harboring a KRAS G12C mutation after at least one prior line of systemic therapy. To help give us a little perspective on this approval, I am joined by two lung cancer experts. We have with us today Dr. Joshua Sabari, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Thoracic Oncologist at NYU, Josh, thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me, Steve. We're also joined by Dr. Sheena Bala, assistant professor of medicine and thoracic oncologist at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Sheena, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Steven. Glad to be here.
0: Now, adagrasib, or formerly MRTX849, is an oral KRAS G12C inhibitor. Uh, Josh, can you maybe tell us in general terms, how does this drug work?
2: Sure. So we know that KRAS cycles between a GTP on or active and a GDP off state. So you know, formerly known, as you mentioned, MRTX849 is a covalent inhibitor. So it irreversibly binds the switch to pocket and selectively locks KRAS G12C in its inactive or GDP bound state. And it's a really interesting molecule. It has properties of you know a long half-life, a 23-hour half-life. And that's quite important because we know that KRAS can regenerate quite rapidly with a half-life of about 24 hours. And interestingly, it's also a uh, PG substrate inhibitor. So there potentially may be very interesting CNS activity with this agent. Now it's targeting
0: KRAS. Um, KRAS mutations we know are fairly common in non-small cell lung cancer, and adagrassib is specifically approved for non-small cell with a KRAS G12C mutation. Uh, Sheena, what do we know about this mutation?
1: We know that KRAS mutations are associated with a history of smoking and are seen in around 25% of non-small cell lung cancer. G12C is the most common KRAS mutation, and it's seen in about 40% of all KRAS mutations. So in total, KRAS G12C accounts for roughly 13% of non-small cell lung cancer.
0: So this is definitely an important one. This is going to be potentially very impactful. Uh, G-12C letters and numbers for those that are a little further away from from biochemistry means at position 12, glycine substituted um, substituted with cysteine. Uh, And as we mentioned, that is a smoking-related mutation. And we now have this drug approved by the US FDA that was based on the CRYSTAL1 trial. Josh, um, I know you're familiar with this study. Can you describe the study design a little bit?
2: Sure. I mean, so first off, many years of negative trials in the KRAS space. So I think this is quite exciting time for our patients that we're now seeing G12C inhibitors, you know, FDA-approved benefiting patients. So the CRYSTAL1 study is a phase 1-2 trial. We'll focus on the phase 2, uh, the dose uh, expansion. And this looked at patients receiving 600 milligrams BID or twice a day of the adagrasib. And we looked at multiple different cohorts of patients. We'll specifically focus on patients with non-small cell lung cancer. And these patients all had prior treatment uh, with chemotherapy and immunotherapy. So this is second line non-small cell lung cancer patients with KRAS G12C.
0: Now, just uh, to be clear, there are many arms in this study. and, And we'll see those arms sort of report out as the years go on. But it is being explored in different Uh, indications and different combinations, but we're looking at monotherapy with adagrasib by itself. So as Josh mentioned, if we focus on previously treated non-small cell lung cancer monotherapy, Sheena, tell us about the efficacy of this drug.
1: Sure. So based on crystal one adagrasib in patients with previously treated KRAS G12C lung cancer had a response rate of about 43% and a disease control rate of 80%. We saw that the median time to treatment response was about one and a half months and the median duration of response was about eight and a half months. The median progression-free survival was 6.5 months and the median OS was 12.6 months.
0: So uh, Sheen, if you can give us a little perspective on that, when I look at that, uh, I see a very quick response. So tiny response, 1.4 months, kind of like your first CT scan. So we see rapid responses, which we want to see with, with effective targeted therapy, that response rate 43%, you know, it's not like a, an osimertinib response rate um, where we see the vast majority of people with a, a significant response, but 43%. Is this, is this substantial? Is this clinically meaningful?
1: I think it is, Stephen. Um, so, you know, this, these are second-line patients. And so if we're comparing this to our second-line treatments that we have otherwise, which is docetaxel or docetaxel and mm. 43% is, is notable. And having a PFS of 6.5 months and OS of 12.6 months, that that is uh, improved to what the standard of care for these patients is right now.
0: That's a good point. So comparison not really the Osimertinib and a different disease type, but compared to what we would normally give here with chemotherapy, um, an upgrade. Josh, do you agree?
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I was hoping to see somewhat higher response rates, you know, with this drug. And You know, we have some prior data we've seen from Sotaracib, another KRAS G12C inhibitor that's FDA approved, and we saw very similar data. So I agree with Sheena. There we saw response rates of about 37.1%. We saw a median PFS of 6.3 months. So this data from Adagrasib looks relatively, you know, similar to the data we've seen with Sotaracib. But I agree. I think we need to do more uh, for our patients. And that question of, you know, if we move this to the frontline setting, would the response rate increase? You know, curious your thoughts there, Steve.
0: Well, in the frontline setting here for KRAS G12C, these are patients often with a smoking history. And this is very different from EGFR, ALK, where we know frontline immunotherapy, largely disappointing, um, very poor outcomes. But KRAS G12C, we can have meaningful, durable responses with immunotherapy. So in my mind, immunotherapy is still king in the frontline setting because I I do think we cure some people with immunotherapy. Um, And and I don't know that we do the same thing with, with the targeted agent. You know, it's not just about efficacy. The flip side of that is safety. So, Josh, can you speak a little to the safety of aggressive?
2: Sure. So, you know, Adagrasib is a relatively well tolerated therapy. It's interesting when we look at the development strategy. You know, we started at 100 milligrams, we got to 600 milligrams, and we got to 1200 milligrams. And we were using 100 milligram capsules. So you can imagine being that patient in clinic getting 12 capsules, quite irritating on the gut. We decided early on to split the dose into 600 milligrams twice a day. You know, with the capsule formulation, you do see some GI or gastrointestinal toxicity. Um, so high rate of you know diarrhea nausea vomiting mostly though grade one and grade two when you look at grade three, which are the ones that we think are real clinically significant, you know, the rates of grade three GI toxicity are, are quite low. Uh, overall, though, if you compare this to sodiracid, I think there's two-fold increased GI toxicity with adagrasid. One thing that we've done more recently is we've switched uh, to a tablet formulation, and we're hoping to see uh, less uh, GI toxicity in this setting. Interestingly, very little uh, um, AST, ALT, uh, transaminitis, and very little uh, hematologic uh, toxicity with this drug. Of note, uh, there was a 4% rate of a QTC prolongation that is in the label, uh, but that is not something that I have found to be clinically significant in my patient population.
0: And I think that it's important to look at you know, discontinuation rates. And for me, the, the amount of dose reductions, toxicity, maybe sort of matters where you start and how the protocol is written. And how often do you have to stop drug due to the toxicity? And and that rate was pretty low, right, Josh?
2: Yeah, agreed. I mean, you know, the dose reduction rate quite low. I mean, it's not uncommon to go from 600 milligrams to 400. And we know that that's an efficacious dose. But really what we care about is dose discontinuation rate. And that was quite low. That was in that 7% range, very similar to what we've seen for Sodoracib and something that is quite, you know, sort of equivalent to what I see on other phase two trials.
0: All right. So you mentioned Sodoracib. Sodoracib, is the other KRAS inhibitor that was approved in May 2021 in this same population, KRAS G12C, non-small cell lung cancer after prior therapy. Sheena, is there any difference between these two drugs?
1: So there are some differences in terms of dosing schedule, toxicity profile, as well as the known CNS penetration. So to start with, Adagrasib is given 600 milligrams twice a day Versus soda acid, which is given 980 milligrams daily, which ends up being eight tablets of soda acid that's taken it at once, which could be challenging for a patient. Um, in terms of safety profiles, you know, both drugs are associated with common adverse effects, including diarrhea, nausea, fatigue, elevated LFTs. But we see as um Josh was mentioning that the frequency of these adverse effects do vary per the drugs. So for example, diarrhea and nausea are noted 60-70% of patients with adagrasib, which was higher than what we saw in the sotoracid trial. You know, we also see that adagrasib has some CNS activity, which I believe is still under study with sodoracid.
0: Yeah, these are great points. And uh, Josh, you actually presented some of that CNS data. I think I know that. Adagrasib was designed with CNS efficacy in mind. The data are a little limited. You know, we we have subset data for patients with brain metastases, but for many of the larger cohorts, those are previously treated brain metastases. And so while we we look at that data, I think when we think of CNS efficacy, we want to see what what is the the activity in people with untreated brain metastases. And so uh, I think you presented the data on that earlier this year. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So there are some properties of adagrasive that allow preclinically for us to think there would be CNS penetration. So we know that this is an inhibitor of PGP or P-glycoprotein, which is a which basically inhibits transporter efflux, basically allowing for accumulation of this drug adagrasse in the CNS. So very early on, uh, we did lumbar punctures on two patients to try to understand the level of the drug in the CNS. So it's not particularly in the brain itself, but it's in the cerebrospinal fluid. And we measured something called the KPUU, which is the percent or concentration of drug in the CSF versus the concentration of drug in the plasma. And, you know, very successful or CNS penetrant drugs have KPUUs that are in this, you know, 0.4 to 0.9 range, like lorlatinib, for example, is in that 0.8, 0.9 range. Uh, Drugs like osimertinib in that range. This drug comes in at 0.47 which is very respectable, telling us that we do see very high rates of CSF uh, sort of concentration of the drug. We did a a extension or a a expansion cohort off of the phase one study of the CRYSTAL trial, where we looked at patients with active and untreated CNS metastases. You're right, it's a small study. It's 25 patients. So I think the data is a little early but we looked at that patient population and treated them with the recommended phase two dose, 600 milligrams twice a day. And we saw about a 32% response rate in that patient population, again, with high rates of CSF penetration. And not only did we see activity, but we saw durability and we look forward to publishing uh, that data shortly. We know for patients with active CNS metastases with KRAS G12C mutations, median progression-free survival around five months. So we're looking hopefully to improve upon that uh, with this drug.
0: So now we have two FDA approved KRAS G12C inhibitors. Sheena, today off study, where does Adagrasib fit into your practice?
1: So I think Adagrasib now represents another great option for our patients with KRAS G12C mutations who have progressed on first line therapies. As we've been talking about, adagrasib and sodiracib have shown fairly similar efficacy in this setting, so I would consider both of these to be potential options here. If a patient has baseline CNS metastases, I may favor adagrasib given the CNS data. However, otherwise, I think that we just need longer follow-up data and phase 3 data comparing adagrasib versus taxol before I would favor one agent over the other.
0: So, I think the the CNS properties of adagrasib are are very interesting. I do want to mention that, you know, at at our institution, uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Chul Kim, uh, did a report on a case of of a a very nice CNS response with sodiracib in untreated brain metastasis. So I know that the data aren't uh, quite as as strong, but I think the drug does work in the brain as well. So Josh, let me throw you the same question. Adagrasib, sodiracib, two approved drugs. How are you making your choice there?
2: Yeah, first off, I saw that case report. I was quite impressed. Not only was it CNS metastases, but you know, correct me if I'm wrong. It was leptomeningeal disease. So, right. you know, kudos to you and the team, and, and a great you know report. I think you know reports sometimes to you know folks listening, maybe you know one off, but I think are really helpful and help guiding uh, further data. You know, I think these are different drugs, uh, right? They have different properties to them, but you know, at the end of the day, when you boil it down, Steve, the response rates, the PFS, progression free survival, and the overall survival, which is our gold standard, look relatively similar. Um, you know, with regards to CNS I think the data is very early as you mentioned we need more data to support one versus the other if I had a patient up front in my office who had you know 10 active CNS metastases I'd probably radiate them up front before using a you know small molecule like this if they had one or two and they were sub centimeter asymptomatic I, I might start with that aggressive uh you know rescan in, in a short interval six weeks the thing that you know I'm really interested in is the the the, the sort of dose of these agents Sheena mentioned earlier Sodaracib, you know, dosed at the 960 milligrams, Adagrasib 600 twice a day. The PKs for Adagrasib are dose dependent. So as you go up on dose, uh, you see better PK, better potential efficacy. With Sodaracib, you know, 240 does not look that different to me than 960. So, you know, to me, that bothers me a little bit, particularly when we think about combinations and, and how to move this drug forward. We also now have some data from the GI malignancy settings, particularly colorectal cancer, pancreas cancer with KRAS G12C mutations. You know, it looks like adagrasib outperforms sotorasib in that patient population. Granted, it's usually in combination. You know, curious to throw the question back at you, Steve, What? how do you differentiate these two agents, you know, I guess, you know, Thursday morning in your clinic?
0: You know, I think they are different drugs, but right now, I don't know if I'm able to leverage those differences and... For me, you know, through our EMR, Sotorasib is there. It's it's you know something that exists. We're familiar with the patient assistance programs with how to order the drug. And I, I'm not sure that today I have compelling reason to make a change. Um, certainly if someone's not tolerating one drug, it's good to have another option. But you know, I'm waiting to see a little more data, still digesting this to, to see if one comes up over the other. But but it is good to have have another option. And you know, these are targeted agents. They have a lot of properties with targeted agents, but these are a little different. And KRAS-G12C is a little different from other targets like EGFR and ALK. True, it occurs in smokers. But I think the big difference for me is the relationship with immunotherapy. And we know from from the Tatten study, from from several different studies, that for EGFR, for ALK, we really can't give IO with TKI. But we don't know if that holds true with KRAS inhibitors, at least for adagrassive So Sheena, recently we saw some data about a combination of adagrassib and pembrolizumab. Um, What what were your thoughts about that data?
1: Sure. So not too long ago, we actually saw data from the CRYSTAL7 trial. And so this was a phase two trial of adagrassib and pembrolizumab as first-line therapy for patients with um, KRAS G12C non-small cell lung cancer. You know, one thing to note was that adagrassib was given at a lower dose of 400 milligrams BID. In comparison to the monotherapy trial that we've been talking about, where the starting dose was 600 milligrams BID. Among the 53 evaluable patients here, the response rate of the combination was about 49%. The disease control rate was 89%. And then the median time to treatment response was 1.4 months. Overall, we saw that the safety profile was fairly manageable and really consistent with either agent as monotherapy. So for example, diarrhea was noted in almost 50% of patients with 5% of patients experiencing grade 3 diarrhea. Hepatotoxicity, which was an issue when we combined sodoracib and prebrolizumab, didn't seem to be as much of an issue here. Elevated ALT, AST were seen in about 20% of patients with 9% 9% of patients having grade three elevations. You know, we saw that 31% of patients experienced treatment related AEs that required dose reduction, though ultimately only 3% of patients experienced adverse effects that resulted in discontinuation of the treatment.
0: Yeah. I, I was surprised to to see these data um, that, that Dr. Yanni presented. I, I expected it to be, to be more toxic, frankly, um, because I, uh, while we don't understand why, you know, targeted agents in IO in a driver-positive lung cancer leads to more tox, uh, it's been pretty consistent. It seems like an outlier, and this was better tolerated than I expected. It changes the calculus for me a little bit. Uh, Josh, what what were your thoughts on this combination?
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I was expecting to see higher transaminitis here. And we think that this transaminitis is immune mediated, right? We saw data from France and Mayo and more recently from the Sotorasib, you know, Cobrake 100 and 101 studies presented by Bob Lee, that we were not able to actively combine Sotorasib with uh, pembrolizumab and or atezolizumab, you know, 30% plus grade three transaminitis. And I've seen patients in my own clinic who post IO, you know, go on to Sotorasib. three uh, Three to six weeks later, and have you know rip roaring transaminitis. It's interesting for the crystal seven data, you know, the, the follow up was quite small, right? So, patients were on therapy median two months, and uh, um, you know, the duration of follow up was about three and a half months. So, I'm not sure if we have full data to really comment on whether you know there is no transaminitis or or, or immune mediated transaminitis moving forward. Dr. Yanni did mention that, you know, there were only one patient or was only one patient who developed transaminitis greater than three months out. So maybe we're in the clear here. I'm not 100% sure, but I was a little bit disappointed though, Steve, by the response rate of all comers being only 49%. We know that, you know, chemo IO, which is what I consider the backbone, if you're going to compare these regimens, you know, you have a 40, 45% response rate there. So I was really hoping for a 50 to 60 plus response rate, but it does look to be safe in my opinion with regard to transaminitis.
0: Yeah, I think we need to, uh, like you said, we need to be a patient. We need to follow this out a, a little more to to really see such a difference here. Um, for me, well, while well, the response rate I think is is you know modest, it's not low, but but in the frontline setting, the reason why we turn to IO is durability, is long term landmark survival, is the potential for really meaningful control of disease, and you know while Adagrassib can potentially uh, give us an additive benefit in terms of, of a targeted agent. I think the real potential there is, is a synergistic relationship. And there's a lot of preclinical data that suggests you know, blocking G12C really can have positive immunogenic outcomes. So to me, the promise of the combination is more durability. Will we have better PFS? Will we have better landmark PFS? And so I think we need to see a little more, but I got to say before this data came out I really wasn't too excited about looking at the a G12C inhibitor in the frontline setting and now maybe that changes a, a little bit at least I, I want to hear more Josh what's what's your prediction then regarding you know frontline therapy for a KRAS G12C non-small cell lung cancer where are we going to be in 10 years
2: Yeah, I know it's an interesting question. I think, you know, you know, first line immunotherapy is sort of here to stay. The question is who to use immunotherapy plus, you know, chemo versus immunotherapy alone. And I think the KRAS G12C inhibitors are now sort of diving into that question as well. So, You know, what I'd hope is that, you know, there'd be a subset of patients who receive, you know, PD1, PDL1 inhibitor plus a G12C inhibitor, but maybe it's going to be a combination of all three. Now, we know that there's a specific population, STK11 co altered, you know, keep one co altered. These are patients who do not respond well to immunotherapy in the frontline setting. They often have low PDL1 expression. You know, these are our patients who are not, you know, having that durable response, as you mentioned. So can we combine with a G12C inhibitor in the frontline setting? And, and I think that's really the hope and the promise. And, and I agree with you, maybe response rate is a small piece of this, but PFS and more importantly, OS is, is really good, what's what's going to drive these potential therapeutics home for our patients.
0: I think in, in larger studies, and as these get a little more mature, I think we really got to pay attention to the the discontinuation, the um, the the delay in therapy. Because, you know, one could imagine a scenario where it could potentially be detrimental. For example, if we had someone that was destined to, to get long-term benefit from immunotherapy, really a long-term survivor, and and we gave him a TKI up front, and that led to some toxicity that made us give steroids, that made us hold immunotherapy, are we maybe depriving him of that, that potential for long-term benefit? Are benefit, we really taking that away? And that would be really tragic. So I, I want to be patient. And I think we need to see a little bit more, but it is interesting. Um, Sheena, you know, are there any clinical situations outside of a trial, but any situations where you might explore giving a drug like adagrasib first line today?
1: So, Stephen, I totally agree with you that there are toxicities to consider with adagrasib. So I really think we have to be thoughtful about giving it to our patients before current standard of care therapies until we have more data. You know, one potential situation where I think we could consider first line adagrasib would be if a patient was not a candidate for first line immunotherapy due to an underlying significant autoimmune disorder and the patient was not interested in first line chemotherapy, then perhaps there, you know, I think a first line KRAS inhibitor would be reasonable. But again, I really just think we need more data.
0: Yeah, I think it's an important point because. You know, Sheena, you and I, we've been preaching frontline targeted therapy for EGFR, for ALK, and it's a little different. The message is a little different here, um, where, where this isn't necessarily something we reach for, frontline. Josh, anything to add there?
2: Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, frontline, we're not there yet, right? With response rates in that mid-30 to low 40%, we're nowhere near we where we are in the EGFR space. And again, these patients do respond well and have the ability to respond well to single agent I.O. or I.O. and in- combination with chemo. So I completely agree with you, Stephen and and, and Sheena here, that we don't want to sort of rob our patients of that opportunity to benefit from these agents. So, you know, currently in 2022 or 2023, in a couple of weeks, I can't really see any, you know, frontline indication in my own mind where I would use a single agent G12C inhibitor. I'm keeping these in my back pocket for second line.
0: Now, Sheena, any extrapolation here to the adjuvant setting?
1: So that that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think for a, a patient after resection with uh, KRAS G12C, my recommendation would still be platinum-based chemotherapy. You know, in terms of adjuvant targeted therapy, at this time, I wouldn't recommend adjuvant KRAS inhibitor. You know, for the EGFR setting, we know that Adora supports our use of adjuvant osimertinib. But I wouldn't extrapolate from this data to justify giving an adjuvant KRAS inhibitor. We know that EGFR and KRAS mutations are biologically different, and that EGFR and KRAS inhibitors vary in terms of response rates and the toxicities. So I really think we just have to wait until we have more data supporting adjuvant use of these agents.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think unlike EGFR, though, if there was pdl one expression, I might think about a tezolizumab here. Would you agree with that?
1: Oh, absolutely. If if there was a, a PD-L1, uh, you know, one or greater, I would talk to the patient about adjuvated atezo.
0: And I, I agree with your point about chemo. Um, Josh, when we think about these drugs, antigrasib, sodiracib, they are a little different. They have some different properties. Do we know anything about resistance? Is that the same for these two drugs?
2: Yeah. So we know some of the data on resistance mechanisms or mutations for adagrassive. Mark Awad uh, from the Dana-Farber group uh, presented really exciting and interesting data um, that, you know, it's uncommon, but patients can get acquired KRAS alterations. And, you know, that's what we would expect in the EGFR population, right? An acquired mutation in EGFR. And if we just build the next generation inhibitor, we could overcome that, right? So we've seen some point mutations in G12C that lead to resistance. Interestingly, we've seen mutations in g 12 G12D, G12V, et cetera, that cause resistance. But more common, what we're seeing is these bypass track mechanisms. So these are acquired alterations in, you know, RTK, RAS, MAP kinase, PI3K. And these are more difficult to treat, right? I mean, these are where all the combinations of, you know, maybe combining an EGFR inhibitor, for example, or you know, other things up or downstream, ERK, you know, mech inhibitors. We also seen acquired gene fusions, which I was a little bit shocked by. So eml 4 alk uh, we've seen that as a uh, resistance mechanism or mutation. I've personally seen patients develop RET fusion. Now, you can try to combine agents here. Um, I've had very little... St- success, you know, maybe only one scan uh, showing response followed by uh, progression. I don't know of the um, uh you know, resistance mechanism data, but I would assume that it would look very similar uh, to what we see here with Adagrasib. Now, there are some specific point mutations in RAS that Adagrasib may have better activity than Sodoracib, but again, you'd have to rebiopsy and resequence your patient or, or re-profile them using liquid biopsy. I think it's too early to really use this data clinically.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And you touched on something uh, that, that I want to stress to the listeners. You know, um, The specific type of mutation really matters. That cysteine residue is really important in the activity of this drug. And so, if we look at KRAS G12D, G12V as resistance mutations, remember, this is not a drug that we expect to work in a KRAS G12D, in a KRAS G12V. And so, Uh, That granularity is important. It's not that it works a little bit in G12V. You wouldn't expect it to work at all in G12V. So, you know, for every targeted therapy, we always stress you have to test. And so, testing for KRAS is relevant. And KRAS is no longer positive or negative. We need to know the specific mutation that's there. And if the test you're using doesn't tell you what the KRAS mutation is, that is now an obsolete test. We need the specifics here. Very important to test. This is a big advance. You know, we, we, Talk about this uh, a drug, sort of very matter of fact, but it is a really big advance to have two drugs for for KRAS. This has been a really tough molecule to target. It's it's different. It's intracellular. There are a lot of challenges. Very central pathways, but it's great to have another option. And you know, you, you've been great. I'd love to keep going, but that that's all the time we have for this episode. So you know, I want to take a moment here to thank both of our guests. Um, Dr. Sheena Bala from UT Southwestern. Thanks for for all your insights. Thanks for, for being with us here today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, Dr. Josh Sabari from NYU. Uh, appreciate you, you taking the time being so generous. Thanks. It was a great discussion. And thanks to everyone out there for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.